everyone, and welcome to a very special evening hosted by Betty Peoples-Wheeler and Vernita Bradford of the Healthy Road Lifestyle to introduce the special guest of the evening, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Please welcome Dr. Hans Deal. Hello. It's so good to see all of you. Thank you, Chef AJ, for making room for us for the special Healthy Road program. It's my great privilege and honor to introduce to you a man that grew up on a farm, saw as his career goal to increase the consumption of animal protein, but over time, documented through revolutionary research, became one of the leading advocates of a plant-based whole food diet to arrest and reverse common chronic diseases. In the process, he also became a committed disciple of a diet-centered program of foods and vegetables, whole grains and legumes, foods as grown, while avoiding all animal products in his own lifestyle. He argues that casein, which is a protein in milk of mammals, is the most significant carcinogen, cancer-causing substance we consume in our diet. This man has written many best-selling books, such as the China study, and more than 300 scientific published research papers. And we here at the Healthy Road Program, together with the TV fan club of Chef AJ, we are all most fortunate to welcome our friend, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Deal. Uh, you and I, and AJ, as a matter of fact, too, uh, we go back quite a few years, uh, all together, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, something like that, <laughs> added up together. Um, in any case, I'm looking forward to uh, this presentation. And uh, let me uh, make sure I got it up there. Just a second. Okay, can you see it now? No, I, you had it up before, so just make sure it's on your desktop first, and then click share no. screen. Yeah, first first pull it up on your desktop or your computer, and then click the share screen button second. Oh, well, I didn't, didn't quite do that. I always usually do it the other way around. Nope, first you got to see what you're talking about, and then click share screen, and then click the presentation. Oh, just a second, I've got to go off. That's usually the opposite way I do it, but nevertheless. Okay, you can try it your way and see if it works. Okay, let me do the share screen first. Is that what you said? Yeah, usually people pull it up on their desktop, then click share screen, highlight okay. their presentation, and it, it should appear. Don't you see it? Can't see it. Now we can see it, but we, we're seeing your whole desktop. So if there's a way to put it in, uh, you know, view mode. Maybe click play from start, perhaps. You got it. Okay, <clears throat> good. I never can feel secure on these until I absolutely see all I want to see. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, everyone can see my screen now, correct? 
Yes, uh, Dr. Campbell. I am sorry. I muted myself for better sound, but I, everyone can see your screen now. Why nutrition is ignored. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks very much. And welcome, everyone. Um, I've been at this business a long time, as uh, Dr. Deal had indicated. Uh, this is my 67th year, I guess it is, from my graduate studies and working on the same question all along, basically uh, nutrition and health. And uh, one of the things that has really become very apparent in recent years is that still today, after so long, uh, nutrition is still not being recognized like it should. And so I want to make that the topic of my conversation. And uh, <clears throat> I'll start off by first pointing out the kind of confusion that I see. Uh, and, and I would suggest that there's really almost nothing more confusing than this topic, it seems like to me. And here's a reason. Here's a reason. There's so many different kinds of diets, it seems to me. And this is what the public sees, too. It's kind of hard to separate them out or know what the differences are, but it's a certain uh, place for a lot of confusion. In my own uh, nutrition research community, uh, we do our part to cause confusion, too. We tend to talk about individual nutrients, what each one does, and it's more than 30 or 40 nutrients. I mean, they're, they're in the hundreds of thousands uh, or nutrient-like substances. Uh, we talk about how much is in the food exactly sometimes. We talk about how much is being recommended, what are the targets of these nutrients. And uh, sometimes we use nutrients as nutrient supplements all acting alone. And I would argue that is not exactly the way it works. Um, it's it obviously just as a source of confusion. Uh, then the medical community who should be, who should be talking about this uh, there's not a medical school in the United States that teaches nutrition. So I speak on behalf of the public, really, uh, with all that amount of material to think about and how you pair things up, it's no wonder that there's a lot of confusion. So uh, let me then uh, start off with uh, what uh, I believe is a fairly couple of uh, simple dietary recommendations. And I'll, we'll talk about the, ration, the evidence for this uh, as we go along. But I, I say two things pretty much cover the cover the world, actually. Uh, we can talk about a million different details, but basically, I'd like to reduce it down to two, two uh, recommendations I said. One is just consume plants, and Dr. Deal said it well. Uh, consume the plants as grown. We can chop and cut them up and cook them and all that sort of thing. But the, the idea is to consume plants in the whole food form. So that Mother Nature has a chance to decide what she wants when she puts things together. Uh, I don't consume animals. Let's not consume animals. And uh, so I'm going to uh, give that evidence fairly uh, straight off. Uh, also, we, as I said, we should be consuming plants in a whole food form. And, and here's the thing here that we should keep in mind. Because this, uh, this message uh, comes from two sources, both causing the same thing. Namely, as we increase animal food, supposedly because we really want it, as we consume animal food, we decrease plant food. This is uh, with the assumption of zero-sum game as far as calories are concerned. So as animal food goes out, plant food goes down. And so when we see some of the evidence I'm going to show you here, here in human populations, it's a contribution of both. But they're both doing the same thing. Animal food increases disease at the same time that plant food decreases disease. So it's really, it's just one factor, really, a ratio of the two. 
Now, as uh, Dr. Dale indicated, I came from a farm milking cows, grew up that way, went off to school eventually to Cornell University. Uh, and there uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on a project to promote the consumption of more animal protein. That was what most everybody thought at that time and still today. Uh, animal protein is a very precious nutrient, so we all think. That's where I started. Uh, but then after I finished my graduate work and, and uh, was uh, put in charge of a project in the Philippines, funded by the State Department, a project that was designed to create a better model for uh, feeding malnourished children. And those of us in the professional field of nutrition in those days uh, often believed that uh, around the world in the poor countries, uh, children, of course, there's uh, too many uh, children are in a difficult way. Uh, and the first thing that they need, so it was generally thought, is to make sure they just got food of any kind. Uh, so to get enough cows, if you will. But then right behind that was the idea that the best kind of diet was making sure they got enough protein. However, in the Philippines, uh, there with these children at the time, uh, when we're supposed to be designing something to make sure they get a protein, uh, I saw something, thanks to a colleague, colleagues of mine, actually, uh, and some other evidence I had, that there was some evidence that the children consuming the most protein, they got, of all things, liver cancer. Liver cancer is very serious, as you know. It's uh, today, these days, is still considered the number five cause of death in the entire world. So it's a, kind of a big deal. Um, and, uh, but with the idea that these kids most likely to get the liver cancer, uh, being the, the, few, the few in that area that had animal protein, we have a problem on our hands. Uh, do we sort of organize this uh, pro program around a consumption of animal protein or not? That was the genesis of my research because I had to, I had to go about uh, at that time uh, doing some basic research to see if this is really true. It's hard to believe. Also at the same time, uh, there was this study in India that I became aware of in 1968, actually, was published. Uh, and this is an animal study, a rat study, where they were, uh, they organized a study to see if they could control liver cancer uh, by uh, increasing animal protein. That was the idea. And so in this right-hand column, I speak to it as hyperplastic nodules, that's uh, liver cancer, if you will. Uh, the animals given the highest level of protein, and that was pretty high at that time, 20% of total calories. Uh, and, and the one that had the lowest level was 5%. In any case, these animals that were prone to get liver cancer because of chemical carcinogen uh, they had been exposed to, uh, and they thought their, their thought was that if they could feed lower protein, the cancer might not occur. You can see here, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite, which really fit in to the suspicions I had at the time. The higher protein gave more liver cancer, if you will. So we had our work cut out for us to see whether or not that was really true. Increasing protein, increasing cancer, that was the story of the day. Uh, and so uh, I had lots of graduate students who were working on their doctorate dissertations and master's degrees and so forth. And uh, we worked on this uh, for the first uh, 12, 15 years uh, to, to see what we could learn about it. How does this happen? And uh, I had lots of different graphs. So I'm going to just show you one here to kind of put us in the right place. 
this is a graph showing the development of cancer, liver cancer, if you will, over the first 12 weeks um, after starting feeding the, uh, the diet. And so feeding the diet with 20% protein, we got what the Indian workers have gotten. 20% protein would turn on that cancer rather, rather well and very quickly. Animals fed 5%, the cancer did not grow. That was, that was really quite spectacular. I mean, it started removing some doubt in my mind. Uh, it, consuming more protein, uh, and it's animal protein, by the way, casein, uh, that's the main protein of cow's milk. And you can imagine how well how that well that's set with me milking cows. And here it is that we're finding the casein of cow's milk can turn on cancer. In any case, we, we did all kinds of studies looking at this up and down one side and another. And, and uh, here's one little observation that uh, really kind of put things in place. Namely, when we started out feeding animal protein, the cancers were growing in the first three weeks, if you will, quite well. However, if we changed the diet from the 20% to 5%, the cancer stopped growing. It went down again and back on again and off again. This is really quite spectacular because what this showed was, and this is, a, as they say, was published uh, at first in, in early 80s at that time. What this showed was that it was possible through nutritional means in this case, uh, to uh, turn cancer not only on, but turn it off. We've reversed in disease, reversed in the cancer, they experimentally, at least in this case. So a big idea came out of this that uh, for the time, for, at those times, namely, instead of genes causing cancer and being responsible for the cancer, like everyone thought, and still most people today still think that, that idea, uh, instead of genes being responsible for uh, the cancer growth, it was nutrition, in this case, in the, in the presence of a protein being adjusted back and forth. So at that time, I was really in a formal community research community. And so in that space of pharmacology, when we see something unusual like that, uh, then the first thought that comes to mind is that maybe if we can understand how that really works, what is a so-called biochemical mechanism, then we might be able to develop a drug and block it and then keep on going along and eating, eating the diet we want. So what I'm showing you here is a, a representation, it's a scheme essentially, schematic of a cancer development that those of us in cancer research used at the time. What, let me explain uh, this, these two charts, they're both the same in the background. But in any case, cancer starts out in the beginning being initiated. That's when a mutation forms uh, and it kicks the cancer off, usually by a chemical of some sort. And then once it's, it, it starts the cancer, then it, the cancer cells start to grow. Uh, double, double, double. And, and finally, it reaches, that's called promotion. Finally, it reaches a point when in the case of humans, we realize we have something here, the problem. We got diagnosed, and of course, we by this time, the cancer might have uh, metastasized to another tissue. At that point in time, it's rather dangerous. It's late in the stage, and the cancer is now developing, oftentimes, as I say, living in another tissue from where it started. Now, okay, that's the background. And in the first chart at the top here, I'm focusing on just this first stage, asking the question, what, what was the what's the mechanism for this effect, this spectacular effect? And so I'm going to just tell you here about the first stage. And uh, usually each one of these, it took three or four years 
to do for a graduate student. We had to develop methodology. I mean, there's a lot of research here in this, in this sort of thing. And so in the first stage here, here's what we learned. Uh, as we increase the protein in the diet and increase the rate of entry of this chemical carcinogen into the cell. Oh, I mean, so that, okay, that's it. Uh, if we just block that entry of the carcinogen into the cell, we can keep on protein. And that's what they're trying to think of we were involved in and everyone else for that matter. Uh, so it increased the rate of carcinogen into the cell. When these carcinogens, chemicals, of course, when these chemicals are in the cell, they are metabolized by an enzyme uh, either to dispose of them, detoxifying, we say, or a little bit can spill out and go and very active uh, product can bind to DNA, which is the stuff of genes, the stuff that gets mutated. It can bind to that and create some mischief and start the cancer. Um, and so at the same time, when all these things are going on, we, we actually had four different ways of, of looking at how this works. And every time we looked for one, looked for a mechanism, we found one. And every time the 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 mechanism would be increased to cause more cancer uh, when at, when the animal protein was increased. Um, however, in this first stage, let me back up just for a second. Uh, so we get the binding, we get the mutation forming at that point in time, and and then when the cell divides, the, all the new cells, the daughter cells, now they're all cancerous, we will. But we have a mechanism normally in our bodies that still works really quite well. It's called DNA repair. So the, by the chemical coming and binding to the DNA, you start things off, we got a mechanism that re reverses it. What did the animal protein do? This is one case where it decreases. So we had got one good mechanism to protect it against the cancer, and animal protein was actually depress depressing that. So let me show you, that. and then we uh, went to the second stage, we looked at some more. I don't want to go into the details here, but simply to point out that after some years, 12 to 15 years or so, working at this uh, research, uh, we found eight mechanisms that uh, the animal protein increased, okay? Everyone, and in, in every case, an increase meant that cancer was turned on. Then there are two mechanisms that were decreased. One appears at the top, one at the bottom. But in any case, two mechanisms decreased. Lo and behold, those decreases uh, that was that was uh, a, a problem because uh, they should obviously be doing their work and keeping keeping cancer at, at arms legs, if you will. So he found after a period of time ten mechanisms: eight increase, two decreased. But lo and behold, all ten worked together in unison. To me. I have to tell you, that was one of the, the most exciting discoveries that I ever ran across, because what this said uh, was that uh, there isn't just one mechanism that causes this cancer, for example. There's a whole bunch. And in this case, they all work in unison together. I mean, just imagine, who's in control here? I mean, we, we tend to think in medicine and, and in this kind of area, we tend to look for the mechanism so we can make the drug. Well, after doing this for some time, I finally got to the point, what is, what? there is no such thing as the mechanism. They're all doing it. And I'm sure if we had a look, we could have found another 100 or 200 or 500. Uh, we, it was enough to really convince me that when the animal protein is increased, 
It really just changes everything, always in the direction of causing more cancers. Now, but keep in mind, most of the carcinogen that comes in the cell is disposed of a detoxified, as we say. But though that, that uh, is activated, uh, we, get, we get the cancer. At this point, we I don't know what the mechanism is. Uh, so there's no room here for making a decision about looking for a drug to block it. Um, all working together. And, and there's another point to be made here. This is also true of other nutrients, if I can jump ahead. Uh, this business of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, whatever, being caused by something like a nutrient, it turns out it's not just one nutrient or one mechanism. It all, all works together. Raise the question, who's the, who's the master here? How, what kind of mechanism do we have to control all of this to make it work at the same time? We, could, we have a word for that in uh, science. So it was called biological plausibility. So what this, what this says is that turning on cancer by animal protein, it can be explained. It's biologically plausible, but not just one mechanism that we uh, would have sort of allowed, for example, making a drug, I guess you could say. Instead, all of them are turned on at the same time. Um, now, uh, casein was the protein, as I said, that we used uh, to cause this problem. Uh, eventually, uh, we did some studies to look at some more plant, uh, some plant proteins. They didn't do that. They had the opposite effect, even when they're fed at the high level. And this was another spectacular idea. Animal protein is just, it's all about animal protein turning on the cancer at really quite low levels, quite frankly. Um, eventually, that was the case. And the plant proteins did not do that. So that raised a question for me at the time. Uh, well, if animal protein has that property, really kind of striking, uh, what about, uh, let's say, what might, what might it be doing, let's say, to other diseases? And then I, I spent the rest of my career really focused on that question too. And it turned out just to jump ahead. Animal protein is a problem for virtually all diseases, so-called chronic degenerative diseases. And the plant proteins in turn prevent. Now, with that in mind, uh, I think we can safely say animal protein causes cancer. And I should say it applies to other cancers. There's no mistake about it, just on the basis of looking at the biochemistry in the cell. Eventually, I had a chance, and this wasn't too many years ago, actually, something like 10, 15 years ago, I decided to go back into the literature and see, among other researchers, if they had any evidence that animal protein had that relationship with cancer. Um, and, and so I found some studies and uh, a number of different, I knew some of the researchers myself, it goes back to 1959, between 1959 and the 1980s, actually. Uh, and let's, let me show you here what I found. This is a chart of the relationship between animal protein consumption, only actually at the bottom here, the relationship between animal protein consumption and in this case, kidney cancer. Okay, and this kidney cancer incidence, if you will. And these are a bunch of different countries. So what I'm gonna show you here is, is some more slides like this, but it's actually comparing the amount of cancer in all these different countries as a function of animal protein consumption. So you can see here, as we increase, as this, in this case, uh, as animal protein consumption increased in these various countries, uh, where was the US? The US is somewhere up near the top here. Here's the US right there. As animal protein consumption is on, on average increased, we get more kidney cancer. And now we've got 
quite a lot of data on this particular point. Sure enough, we can uh, make that uh, point quite clear. I drew the line through these uh, uh, using uh, just a bit of regression line for that. The authors did not do that. They just put, put that up. But I, I drew the regression line uh, in, in a way in which, you know, the points are equal number of points on either side. And what you can see here is that uh, it's almost like a straight line relationship. And the cancer start increasing shortly right after you consume just even a tiny bit of the animal protein. And this one, this is a problem. A probability, of course, that line could be right going right through there. But anyhow, that's what it looked like. So I found another one. Here is heart disease as a function of animal protein. As animal proteins increase, and this this researcher actually gathered a bunch of countries, got data on them, made this chart, and this is animal protein consumption versus heart disease. Once again, as animal proteins increase, look at this. Really quite amazing. This, the question on heart disease is pretty remarkable. We've often thought it was due to fat or saturated fat in particular. That's not really true. We get heart disease from consuming animal protein. Make no mistake about it. And that's been low and actually for a long, long time. But no one really much wanted to talk about it. Much they said it's fat, which was, which is not correct. Um, and uh, and up, adjusting fat up and down doesn't make a lot of difference. But in a practical sense. Uh, when we consume animal foods to get that good animal protein, if you will, we're consuming more fat. So you see fat have the same relationship, but it's really animal proteins are causing heart disease in this case. That was a study done in 1959, actually. Here's one here on prostate cancer. But this time, you know, everybody in science, most even today, these days, they think of, think of diet uh, causing, let's say, if a diet is related to a disease, they tend to think, they look for one one. Um, mechanism. They looked for one nutrient, if you will, or one kind of food. In this case, this is the 1980s. Uh, and this gentleman here uh, got a bunch of uh, data together from uh, different countries um, and uh, compared uh, prostate cancer um, uh, mortality in this case versus non-fat milk. Now stop and think about it. Non-fat milk uh, obviously has no fat, skim milk, if you will, uh, and there's no sugar really. And so of the three major calorie sources, um, this really turns out to be protein. So this, instead of calling it non-fat milk, which gets people excited and confused and so forth and so on, this is really animal protein. Uh, and once again, we see the same relationship as, as renal cancer, heart disease, and prostate cancer. Pretty remarkable. Every time we see the same, same uh, plot, Here's one by a friend of mine from uh, Canada, and Dr. Dealey, you'll know him as Ken Carroll. I think he would call him some years ago. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Carroll actually had a bunch of countries too at the same time, and he was interested in seeing how that related to breast cancer. And so what he did in those days, thinking that saturated fat was the cause of cancer, uh, he actually looked at the relationship between saturated fat and breast cancer, and once again, same uh, relationship. I asked Ken, his friend of mine at the time, he, I was asked to give a, some testimony in the National Academy Committee. Uh, and uh, he was on that committee at the time. And I asked his permission. I said, I'd like to, I said, Ken, I'd like to show you something here. It's not really saturated fat, it's animal protein. The correlation between saturated fat and animal protein. I, I say that because I just want to 
don't be taking the liberty of saying something that he didn't agree with in the beginning. So he agreed completely when I pointed out what was involved here. So once again, a saturated fat or animal protein, once again, is in breast cancer result. So here's four cases already of, of uh, uh, different cancers and one, uh, three different cancers and heart disease, animal protein associated with increases in these diseases. Here's another one. In this case, here's heart disease uh, rate on the x-axis on the bottom, just flipped a bit. Uh, and it's uh, compared with the consumption of cholesterol. Now, a lot of us think that cholesterol causes heart disease. No, that's a, that's a, a mistaken uh, story and take to us uh, too long here to explain why that got into our into the weeds. But in any case, what we see here is that as cholesterol intake goes up, and that's the same as, I mean, that's exactly correlated with animal protein. As that animal protein is increased, if you will, here's heart disease mortality increasing. This has been shown in other studies like this too. Here's one for colon cancer. This is meat, well, obviously meat is animal protein. So as, as meat consumption is increased, colon cancer is increased. In this case, it's instances of colon cancer. Each one of these papers, mind you, was done by a different research group, uh, probably not known each other, uh, and uh, all showing the same thing. Here's one for urine cancer. In this case, they were measuring total fat. That's the way we did research in those days, and still most people still try to do it. We try to find out what's in the food that might be related to heart disease or cancer and that sort of thing. We look for one thing. That's really a mistake, because it turns out that we see these relationships, and in this case, every single one is animal protein. What, notice one thing about these lines. The, as these lines go down, straight down, uh, it tells us, theoretically at least, that as soon as we start consuming animal food, supposedly maybe to get the cholesterol, certainly the animal protein, as soon as we start consuming that, the risk of these diseases starts to increase. Small at first, but eventually then it becomes very high. This corresponds, of course, to the kind of the rates of disease we see in, in uh, total human studies. So I've shown here, it says animal protein, I call them surrogates, things like cholesterol and meat and total fat. I mean, these are all animal protein things. Uh, and uh, this has never really been published before. People have tended to think, you know, skin milk causes prostate cancer or cholesterol causes heart disease and so forth and so on. In reality, they all have one thing in common. One thing in common, it's animal protein. And I'm, I feel very comfortable saying that not only because of the way these charts arrange themselves, but also because of the ability of animal protein to create cancer through the mechanism that it uses. Now here's, uh, just to keep us on, on track, here's one by uh, the late Ken Carroll, uh, who did the other one on, on uh, saturated fat. He looked at uh, unsaturated fat in this case, or plant protein. You can see in this chart here of breast cancer, there's no relationship between plant protein and breast cancer. All these others are between animal food or animal protein, if you will, and these various cancers. So now let me turn your attention to something fairly recent. I, I've probably gotten into, the, into this business for a long time. I've uh, explored uh, with many students I had, uh, you know, how this works and and I can assure you that all these relationships are really quite striking, and we can explain them from a biological perspective. I don't, I don't. There's no one will ever come along and show something different. I mean, this is this is a, a, a final sort of statement in a sense because no one can go along and find another bunch of countries 
and shows the opposite. As animal proteins increase, the cancers will go down and heart disease will go down. It won't happen. So I feel very comfortable that this, these observations here tell us one story, very, very powerful. Animal protein causes cancer, causes heart disease, causes chronic kidney disease, and a bunch of other so-called chronic degenerative diseases. So um, any animal food is not in our, our best interest, let me tell you. Here's one on, on a virus. Uh, no one has really uh, told about this, but uh, when the coronavirus started uh, last in, in 19 or in 2020, or 2020, uh, I had a, a lot of evidence from a study we had done in China years before. In fact, it had been done twice, and, and this is the second round of it. We, in, in that study, we were looking at the relationship between nutrition and various kinds of diseases. And it was a huge study of the New York Times called the Grand Prix of all studies. And we had access to a huge amount of information. And so uh, in this case, there's almost 9,000 adults. What we did there in this study uh, was to uh, see if we could determine the causes of hepatitis B virus, which causes liver cancer, as I mentioned before. This is a very sketchy, uh, brief summary of that. Almost 9,000 adults, we measured how, who amongst these uh, people had, uh, let's say, the active virus, the active virus, who was forming antibodies, and well, what were their nutrition conditions that were related to this disease? Now, here's a little schematic just to explain to you how virus works. This applies to coronavirus as well. The virus is out there in the environment somehow, water, air, whatever, whatever. It infects us. And then when the virus infects us, it's not, that's not a big problem that when it first infects, uh, if in fact the our immune system can come into play and take care of it. So it affects us. The virus remains active for a little while. Uh, we were able to measure this virus and all these people, there's an active virus for the antigen, and we could look to see what would happen. Now, this virus has caused liver cancer. And I tell you, this is a really big cancer in China that causes this cancer. So we wanted to see what amongst our collection of data we had, as I say, a huge volume of information on nutritional characteristics. Here's the one that really took, uh, took home the message. Animal protein consumed even in small amounts, even only 10% on average what we do in the West. Those people consuming animal protein, even small amounts, they were the ones that converted the antigen, the active virus, to liver cancer and died. In contrast, those consuming more plant food, as you can see here, they were the people who did not get liver cancer and they formed antibodies to deactivate the virus. And they also uh, uh, caused the, the production of so-called T cells. Now I put that in there because we did this now almost 40 years ago in China. The virus, when the pandemic came out, uh, a lot of issues arose and still is arising now, spending millions of dollars trying to figure out how we can activate the T cells, which comes from the immune system. It's a very active area of research. What we found in an animal study just cut out the animal protein and the T cells will come to life and take care of things. So it's just one of those mechanisms we did from before. So here you have it. Animal food causing cancer, plant food not, just that simple. This is based on a total of 11, 11 highly, highly significant risk factor correlations, all converging to the same conclusion. 
very, very powerful data. Um, and uh, this was published uh, in, well, in 1980. We started two, two studies, one in 1983, one in 1989. The one I'm talking about now is one we were just analyzing here at the beginning of the pandemic. But nonetheless, uh, 11 risk factor correlations, all highly significant. Once again, I mean, this, this is sort of reputable evidence. I had some other evidence that on viruses, uh, consuming plant-based diet would protect us against the viruses. However, I submitted this for publication. And I saw something the first time in my life I saw this. This was in 2021, a year after the pandemic was around. And so I summarized these data, sent them in for publication in one of the two, or two of the best known journals in the world. I published there before, no problem. And in science, we're always entitled to have it reviewed. And then you either reject or accept it, if you will. In this particular case, in both cases, the organizers, the business people, if you will, the ones running the show, the journals, they wouldn't even send it out for review. I have to tell you, this is a huge, huge deal because I was merely saying, in this case here, we see these results striking, really striking. I was merely suggesting with the kind of evidence that we had on this virus, it might work for coronavirus. Why not take the opportunity to begin to tell people, change their diet? I'm really convinced it would have made a big, big difference, but they had other ideas. They thought but, uh, vaccines were the way to go, which wasn't. So uh, I did eventually publish that, but it was in a less of, less noticed uh, uh, journal. And uh, so it did get published, but it, it says something that's really quite remarkable. Namely, the kind of diet that prevents and reverses heart disease as my my good friends, Dr. Ornish and Dr. Esselton and, and others have shown, uh, it reverses cancer, at least experimentally and, and, and that sort of thing. The kind of diet that does that, I call a whole food plant-based diet. It works on viruses too. Make no mistake about it. Now we tend to consume animal uh, protein or animal food uh, back to an old idea that was published in 1924, now a hundred years ago about, an old idea that animal protein somehow is higher quality, plant protein is low quality, you've probably heard this before. It's not true. It's not true. Uh, the, they call it high quality because it refers to the amount of protein being consumed that's retained in the body. Well, okay, we animal foods are all high quality, more is retained in the body because animal proteins are sort of like our, our protein, we're animals too. And so it's quite natural to assume more is going to be retained. And so when we retain more in the body from the animal sources, it increases body weight gain, good for animal production, but it also turns on cholesterol, uh, cholesterol synthesis and a whole lot of other things, it turns on cancer. So it really is, a, it really a, we've been swimming in the wrong pond for a long time. And so-called high-quality animal protein that's promoted and sold and creates a huge industry and all that sort of stuff, it would, without a doubt, it also increases the mechanisms that turn on these diseases. These are our own sort of uh, discoveries that no one wants to, they're published, but they're not making any news, and that's another story. Animal protein increases growth hormone, which increases cancer and a lot of other uh, difficulties. It increases blood estrogen. That's a hormone for women. That increases heart disease risk. It increases free radicals, which is another 
uh, very reactive product that comes from consuming more animal protein, and on and on. Uh, in other words, animal protein increases cancer by a bunch of different mechanisms. It increases heart disease too. And this is something that goes back to the early 1900s when it was first discovered, but then they wanted to deny it. It was published and quite remarkable. So animal protein increases serum cholesterol, which in turn increases heart disease, and it increases diabetes and a bunch of other diseases, arthritic diseases, chronic kidney diseases, autoimmune diseases. Animal protein is a problem. It's really a problem. And that's why I had to tell you, I was from the farm in the beginning, and, and uh, by graduate school, I was doing the doctorate dissertation because everybody thought that too, that uh, you know we had to figure out how people could get more access to more animal food when in fact, I eventually learned is exactly the opposite. Okay, now, uh, in the time I have left, I want to share with you a little bit of evidence on another idea. So in, in short, let me just say this. I just showed you a tiny bit of data we have, but very powerful data. You said we have no business eating animal food, period, end of story. Uh, and no one will ever show anything to the reverse, except little tweaks here and there, but don't, doesn't make any difference. I want to show you the second part of that message that I talked about, eating whole food. Uh, and this, I'm taking, starting out here with, with a publication in 1981 by some authors in uh, Chicago at the time. Uh, and at that time, uh, the health community was working hard, as they should have been, to decrease smoking. And so there was a big story about that. I'm sure many of you know that story. Eventually, smoking did come down quite a bit. But it, uh, they really got onto it because of this study here in part. Very, actually a brilliant study. Let me show you what the study is. Uh, you can see it's, we call it three-dimensional. Okay, so along uh, this axis here, they had uh, smokers. They were looking at smokers. Uh, they gr grouped them into non-smokers, first entry here, and then those who smoked less than 30 years, and then those smoking more than 30 years, okay? What they found was the people, the people who had been smoking more than 30 years, they were the ones that got the lung cancer. They were less than 30 years, they didn't get too much, but they did something else. And here's the point of my telling you this. It's because in this group of heavy smokers, you'll see there's a dose response among that group, all of them smoking more than 30. But look, here's really high and gradually goes down. <clears throat> what they found was they took, they measured something else in this study and they measured the consumption of carotene. Now you may know that carotene is pre-vitamin A. Carotene is only in plants. So, but they were looking at just one chemical at the time, one nutrient. And this is really a reflection of plant food and so what they found is in this group of heavy smokers, you can see um, when you break them off into four different groups, the ones consuming the lowest level of carotene, they had the highest amount of lung cancer. And look at that beautiful dose-response relationship. Those consuming the most beta carotene, more you know, plants, if you will, they it pre prevented these smokers from getting lung cancer, almost down to zero, even in spite of the fact they're heavy smokers. Um, now, of course, uh, that, uh, because it suggests that if you eat plants, you can even smoke and maybe get away with it. <laughs> I, I am not about to, to promote that idea whatsoever. I'm merely mentioning that uh, this kind of data really at that time for me was remarkable because I was at the time turning cancer on and off and showing how nutrients can affect 
uh, plexus cancer process. And so this fit right into what I was learning myself in the lab. Increased plant, uh, plant protein or plant food consumption. It even, you sort of knocks out lung cancer to say nothing of all the other kinds of uh, diseases we have. That's really quite remarkable. Anyhow, some researchers at that time that got, got wind of this and they got quite excited about it, said, wait, you know what? We If we put some beta carotene into some pills, then we could give it to smokers and get lung cancer. So that study was organized, believe it or not. Okay, here's the summary of it. We'll do it. This, this is the 1980s at the time. Very exciting. Everybody's excited about this. And so here's a summary of what they learned after. Uh, it was meant to be for eight years because they, they knew they had to do the study for eight years because they had to get that amount of time to see differences. But they saw something that was unexpected. Look at this. 29,000 male smokers, they followed them. Okay. Uh, half of them got the uh, beta carotene, and the other did not. You see how it worked. Uh, they had to stop the study at five years it, because they got a result. Really pretty remarkable. First off, the people consuming beta carotene form of food, their lung cancer rate, rate was decreased once again. This is a new study. That's a very short period of time. And it was statistically significant. More food consumption in the form of beta carotene, it came down. But look at this. Those who got the supplement, the beta carotene, it increased lung cancer and it was statistically significant. This was a remarkable study. And uh, at that time, uh, what, what it says that uh, nutrients, uh, when they're in food, they work. Okay? When they're in food, they're working as they should, good nutrients. But when you take them out of the food and put in a pill, like a supplement, they can have the opposite effect. Uh, I, I was very central to this at that time because there was a group of entrepreneurs who were wanting to make a uh, a supplement industry. This is the middle 80s, by the way. And so they were making some claims about a study that I had co-authored with some others to the National Academy that weren't weren't right. They took out a full page in of Time magazine and Newsweek and U.S. News report, and they were working hard to to take advantage of what they thought they were seeing in our study. And they started wanting to put these nutrients in some supplements. And they were making claims that weren't right. They were misquoting our, our work. And so the National Academy of Science uh, took them to court in Federal Trade Commission Court. And it was a, there was a trial lasting for three years and, and uh, challenging the industry for making these wild claims. Uh, and they asked me, I was a representative. I was in the docket for three years off and on. Uh, being the person who was judging, you know, their claims, if you will. And so I, I tell you that because I, I had an opportunity to see not only this question concerning nutrient supplements, uh, in this case, but also I've watched closely the studies done on nutrient supplements, supposedly for good effect. And I can tell you that the nutrient supplements really cannot be counted on to work, period. Um, they can have the opposite effect. Most of the time, they have no effect. But nonetheless, in spite of that, the industry kind of got laws changed and uh, redesigned in the government and so forth, the Food and Drug Administration. They got redesigned, so uh, it allowed them to start uh, forming a nutrient supplement industry. And the nutrient supplement industry formed in the early 1990s, at least in a, in a big-time way. And uh, now today, as you know, it's something like a $70 billion industry. 
But the nutrient supplements is not the same nutrition. It's not even nutrition, I call it. It's not the same nutrition as you can find in food. The message here is get your food, get your nutrients from food. Make sure it's animal food. I mean, a plant food fat. That's why I say whole food, by the way. Because uh, I'm going to came up with a word plant-based. Uh, that was in the late uh, 80s when I was asked by some colleagues uh, <laughs> to try to explain how nutrition might work at a meeting. And anyhow, I, I didn't want to use the word veg vegetarian. I don't particularly like that word uh, because uh, it's not, the science behind it is not uh, spoken in the right way. So I use the word plant-based. And a little later, because of being in this trial situation with the gov government, uh, it was clear to me that it's all about whole foods. And so I decided to stick the word whole on it and came up with that term whole whole food plant-based. So it was back in the 80s, and I, and I just, because I wanted to get away from the, uh, it's, it's a good argument to you know, live by your ethics. That's, there's no question about that. And to do it for animal's sake, I'm all for that. But on the one hand, but on the other hand, it does not speak to, uh, hasn't spoken to the question concerning human health. So I've came up with the word holism. I used the W in front of it. Previously, I've been spoken of just for the HMO, and I want to emphasize that idea of whole. And this other, using single nutrients, that's what the whole drug industry is about, by the way. Uh, the drug industry, for the most part, is about using single drugs, single chemicals to do this, this that, something else, instead of the whole food to, to do it right. Uh, and we tend to work in my community with single nutrients. So I find a huge difference between trying to rely on single nutrients they're doing their thing good or bad uh and then holism so now let me just give you just a, new, a little more insight on this here because this idea of whole food i i just find so remarkable uh way back when i was uh early in my career i was teaching biochemistry in biochemistry and we we are dealing with a, a simplified version of this thing called the Krebs cycle like close to the top where basically the sun shines on plants and, and, and captures the energy and puts it in the form of chemical bonds and, and makes little chemicals, if you will. We consume the chemicals and then they kind of strip off some energy as we metabolize it. And that's where you get that's where we get our energy from. We get it from the sun into the plants, we the plants, and there you have it. Anyhow, let me show you this here. This this is a it, when I was teaching it, it was even simpler than this because. Uh, not all of these intermediates had yet been found, most of them, not all. Uh, so the sun comes in, we capture the energy, then we go about eating that and, and then stripping off the energy and doing things with it. Let me show you something. Within about a 10 year, a 10 year <laughs> time, when I was teaching, it had become this. I mean, you know, there was an industry and other industries, but one in particular kept Sigma chemical. They kept adding you know, all these new discoveries about this, uh, this reaction, that reaction. So it went. And so about 10 years after that, maybe 15, I, I guess, this, this is what you see here. It was getting so complicated. There were so many reactions. I can tell you right now, it's 100 times the size. This is our metabolism in every cell of the body. The, you know, we get chemicals into our cells. Those, those chemicals are broken down and they do their thing. Uh, we get energy out of a lot of them. Uh, I call it a metabolic maze. But let me tell you something. This is really striking. I, I finally realized. 
the drug protocol, and as I say, I was in a uh, pharmaceutical industry the first 15 years or so of my, my career. And so I had a good feeling for what goes on in the drug industry uh, and how, how they think. You know, the, the people who want to make drugs, they first they want to find out what's the mechanism for some problem they see. That's why I told you about mechanism. I, I was doing that too, looking for a mechanism. But finally came to the conclusion there is no such thing as one mechanism. We can't rely on that. That's crazy. Because if we make these chemicals, call them drugs, if you will, you come in and hit one of these reactions, and I'm just showing you one here for just for sake of argument, uh, one reaction, uh, then we're going to block you know, the diseases that come out of that. It's really quite foolish. Really, really foolish. Um, and we get multiple side effects. You know, the third or fourth leading cause of death in this country, the side effects of drugs, by the way, those are officials. The CDC doesn't want to mention that, but it's published. The food protocol, here's the difference. Drug protocol is one thing. We're going to solve our, solve our health problems by creating one chemical and then deal with it this way, which is, I have to say, with multiple side effects. And a lot of times, there was no, no benefit, no efficacy. We might see some effects sometimes in a short run, but for the long run, it doesn't substitute at all with food. In, in contrast, food's got all these wonderful foods in plant form, right? And uh, they, they operate in this mysterious way. There are millions and trillions of cells, you know, with millions of different kinds of chemicals, all being consumed and then being handled in a body in this remarkable way, in a very uniform way, uniform way. We will never do that in science. Uh, it, it's, it's something that it, it just happens. I, I just can't, it, it's uh, sometimes I compare it to the, uh, something like the Renaissance art, where you get an expression of something with uh, focusing on individual strokes of the pen. In any case, this is what my take on this really complicated metabolism is all about. Now, let me break it down here and tell you how others think, see it. This was, a, this was published in, uh, in, 19, in the late 1980s. Uh, heart disease was uh, a problem, okay? Uh, and uh, also, it was noticed that high cholesterol in the blood was associated with heart disease. And they thought cholesterol was causing it when, as I said, that's not really the case. But anyhow, high cholesterol goes up with heart disease for other reasons, not because it causes heart disease, but uh, anyhow, they got the idea that uh, this cholesterol is causing heart disease. We got to figure out somehow, if we can find out how that's made, uh, then we can maybe get a chemical and block it. So they went to the, the chart here, as you can see here, and learned how cholesterol is made. And we make cholesterol. It's a good, a good thing in our bodies. And so it goes through a series of steps. It goes through a series starting up this compound called acetyl-CoA. It, it makes eventually makes cholesterol. cholesterol. So the idea was, let's find some chemical to block this and we'll control heart disease. So they looked and they found one. Wow, they, they got one eventually. This is the statins. This is the statins that but generally don't work. This is, again, a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. That's how we're going to control heart disease. It is really... I have to say, it's nonsense. Yeah, the best evidence that we have is it might decrease uh, uh, risk of heart disease or, or decimal heart disease by 9%. A lot of studies show nothing. And on top of the statins have a lot of side effects. 
here's a comparison of, uh, a guy showed me that he had uh, done and he was tender i didn't know him very well but he sent me this chart that he had put together some data on the comparison of heart disease interventions on on heart disease mortality and what he showed here is that people with heart disease not treated uh their their rate of heart disease is set at 100 if you will those who do st stents as a means of controlling heart disease it decreased heart disease by a tiny tiny little bit statins as i say that's the nine, that's the best that's the bigger best figure i could come up with it decreased heart disease by nine percent with, with side effects by the way vegetarians they're down a little bit they do a little bit better they get it down but you know the ones that don't get the do the best of all is whole food plant-based diets this is why dr ornish dr fleshley dr esselton uh want to show you some uh some dairy a bit but nonetheless he got some really good evidence and and esselton got these remarkable results you know you switch to a whole food they plant-based diet not only prevent disease it actually reversed it and then we spent all this kind of money to do something different when the one thing is staring us right in the face we don't take advantage of it so anyhow i uh, spent my career doing this kind of stuff and getting into a lot of trouble and having situations where my own society a petition had me thrown out of my society and i had to go to a hearing in washington and uh, on and on like that people try to get me thrown out of, out of university and I, I i say that because the one thing i was able to withstand this nonsense is because i had academic freedom academic freedom it was so precious i was granted uh that early in my career in the early 30s uh and so i was able to speak what i wanted to uh and uh just let, let the rest and you know speak out out loud which i was able to do and as hard as they tried they didn't didn't get it and i was complaining you know <laughs> during this time and my wife finally said uh and she said why why don't you take write a book for the public and tell them about this so i wrote the china study i didn't think it would go anyplace um and finally this is the second that was 2005 <clears throat> i put a second one out uh this is the second edition the book has been held translated over 50 foreign languages and the number of copies sold is it's got to be close to four million right now this is figured four or five years ago uh the, the book has really, really settled well and uh i was surprised i i didn't think it would go anyplace but uh the, it, it really has demonstrated for a lot of folks um you know what what they can gain what they can do uh what dr deal has talked about by the way and dr esselton dr ornish dr mcdougall name name there's quite a lot of people now in the professional arena sort of seeing things from various points of view um and uh, the book that i find i get most excited about uh is whole because there i'm trying to explain the basic biochemistry and other epidemiological related stuff to talk about the fact that the way we get healthy is allow whole food as in nature to do its job we don't need to come in and try to suppress that idea talking about eating the wrong food or even point sort of forgetting about the fact that the whole food worked all one time can do the work instead we tend to let ourselves eat the wrong food and we let ourselves get disease 
all being sort of, um, we can assume somehow when we get the disease, oh, well, that's okay, we'll have some drugs for it. This has got to be one of the worst operations that I can imagine. Uh, it's time that we, everybody get to know this, uh, and so we get things turned around. I finally published uh, another book, Future Nutrition, using examples of the past that were wrong, describing it that way. Uh, this book this book had done really well. We haven't gotten the publicity for it. I wrote this with uh, my grandson, actually, a really good writer, Nelson Deesler, graduate at University of North Carolina. So we, we did that, and that came out in 2020. Now I want to leave you this. This is really, really significant. Um, you know, we got all kinds of problems. We all know that. We've got environmental, I, I just don't line them up this way. Environmental problems and human health problems, okay? We can break it down to, here's some sample, some ideas, climate warming, deep water loss, all that kind of stuff. Over here in, in human health, we've got huge healthcare costs. We're doing it the wrong way right now. We've got a dependency on prescription drugs. We're the number one country in the world doing that. We got drug side effects, third leading cause of death. I mean, something, something's wrong here. Uh, and so we got all these problems. We could, you could add some more yourself uh, to these. I just wanted to make the point here. When we do that, when we talk about all these as if they're separate problems, we then tend to assume they have independent causes. Each of them has a causes. So we spend a lot of money, get active and excited about that. That's fair enough to work, you know, specialize in that kind of thing, but. You know, what, what about the idea? Oh, here, I just put some charts up here. Now, prescription drug dependency is related to high healthcare costs and side effects and shorter life, by the way. But in, in any case, these things interplay with each other. We tend to assume they have independent causes. We're wasting our time, always looking for a drug and finding some way to do that. I suggest we have one broad spectrum cause. One broad spectrum cause. And I can make a case, and now some people are starting to begin to make the case, that all of these would be minimized if we ate the right diet. It's that simple. We tend to eat an animal protein enriched diet to cause these problems. Animal protein itself has that problem, but as I said before, remember, when we eat animal, animal food, just to get that good animal protein because it's high quality, that's nonsense. We eat all the animal food and we decrease our consumption of plant food where the real problem begins to occur. So we got to combine those things. Don't eat animals. We don't have, there's no point of eating animals. And why don't we just get the right kind of plant food? You can have all the variety you want. There's no special formula, just whatever you like. I, I finally have right, I ended up on this note here about having a new definition of nutrition. It really involves not one nutrient, here and one nutrient there and so forth and so on. It's multiple nutrients. Each nutrient has a multiple mechanism. That's the story there I could have told and spent a couple of hours on that one. Each nutrient has multiple mechanisms oftentimes. They create, they, they, the good diet actually prevents some multiple diseases, causes multiple health improvements. That's when I use this word here, whole food, plant-based. It's whole, as I said, plant-based. I don't see how we can go wrong. And, and it's, it's such a simple message. We don't need really to get caught up in all this funny details that we get involved in. We, we can forget the data. Just tell people, just a simple message. Just a simple message. Eat plant foods, you know, in a wholesome form. We can cook them, we can cut, cut them up and dice them, we can mix them, match them, whatever way we want. We'll get most of the benefits of nutrition just by doing that. Lily? 
here's reductionist medicine. Okay, I'm, I'm just about right done here. Uh, this is what's wrong with medicine. I've spoken in medical schools in all but six states in this country. Uh, and I, I know the systems fairly well, I think. A lot of good people, great people work working in, in, that, in that discipline, but not a medical school in the country teaches nutrition. They live on this concept of looking at one thing at a time, usually drugs. And in some cases, you know, they, they can create some good effects, at least for a short term. But if, they, if we're going to do that, I don't want to, I don't want to distract from, from what is being done. I just simply want to say when that becomes the only way and not teaching nutrition, that's where the problem occurs. Okay, um, just said enough about that. Thank you very much. I hope I didn't go over too far, uh, Hans, but uh, there's, there's my story. Wow, thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. I'm going to stop your screen share now, if that's okay. Okay, I will do that. Dr. Deal, did you want to say anything? I had to mute you because you... Uh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine, Dr. This was absolutely fascinating. I mean, putting it all together, maybe some of you may found this too technical in some ways, but I mean, you saw the chart after chart after chart after chart, and you saw the, the regression lines every time. The more of animal protein, the more disease. Um, to, to lighten it up maybe a little bit, uh, I was wondering if Dr. Uh, Campbell would be open to sharing how he became a doctor to his wife and turned a special disease around. Yes, thank you Hans, for that reminder. I, I, uh, I'm glad you raised that question. Yeah, uh, we, uh, as I say, we were the typical American diet, uh, first part of our uh, married life and gradually started to change and and uh, by uh, what was it, the late uh, 80s, the more or less were almost there, uh, she was diagnosed with melanoma, really uh, advanced melanoma, mind you. I mean, that's a pretty serious case. Of now, for, excuse me, help us understand what melanoma is for everybody's oh, okay. benefit. Yeah, melanoma is skin cancer. It's a really dangerous kind of skin cancer, and it's, it's deadly. It's a very lethal cancer. And so of all things, she got uh, diagnosed with that. So uh, I went in to look at the, under the microscope too, to look at the cells. And I saw something that was relating to somebody in England, namely that, this, that what they were looking at was an early state, was not quite advanced, but they called it advanced, and that's the way it is. And the doctor wanted to give her drugs. So, um, and very serious drugs. And wanted and migrated to her lymph gland. So we went in. I was with her that day. He didn't know who I was. But anyhow, he was setting it up, telling her to take these, this chemotherapy regimen and also to do an operation to remove that, those lymph glands at that point. And she, she knew enough what I was thinking, and she was thinking too. She said, No, I'm not doing it. He got really quite angry. I just told her, you, ma'am says, if you don't do this, I'll, in six months time, I'll be able to do nothing for you. But that's what uh, I believe, and she did, she, that was her decision, obviously. Um, that was 18 years ago, and no trace of it since she's now 83. Earlier, uh, she, her mother had passed away at the age of 50, 51. 
of colon cancer. And uh, you know, on the wrong diet at that in those years, of course. And uh, it, it was sort of the same thing. We it wrong, she had that problem. Then Karen had uh, symptoms of early colon cancer early, early on. She had two brothers who died in their fifties of, of colon cancer. So it's, if you will, it's kind of there, it's in the family. She didn't do anything and she has no trace of that either. So uh, there you have it, my, my side of the family, my dad, who I must tell you, I have to say this because I, I owe so much to him. He only had two years of formal education. Uh, and uh, he was so anxious for me to get an education that he had, had set up. So I drove just 102 miles a day to go to high school, junior high and senior high. And then uh, eventually go to school. And I was the first one to go to college. So I want to check. I want to say that because uh, he he meant so much to me, and it was his his idea that he said, uh, "Just remember, son, when you go out there, say tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth." Mm. That was a dri driving force for me. But I, I have to tell that. So on both our family, cancer in my wife's family, heart disease in my side. He died early. He got a heart attack at sixty three, passed away at seventy. His brother had a fatal attack at 58. Their father, my grandfather, is 73. So between Karen and I, uh, we did our thing, and I think we saw the benefits. And I, I forget whether I said this before, but I, th I, I think I did say this when I was running some difficulty, people were getting angry with me, you know, taking a stand from here and there. She finally told me, I apologize if I saying this a second time, but she says, why don't you write a book for the public? And that was the basis for the China study. So I, I did. I didn't expect to get any place with it. But as I said, it's really going well. So she and I, this is our 61st year of marriage. And uh, we don't use drugs. And we just live by this. Uh, so I, this is personal for me. I tell you, big time to uh, eat this way. Thank you for sharing that and this beautiful outcome. We just love Karen and we love you. We do. Dr. Campbell, would you care to answer a few questions from the viewers? If I can, yeah. Okay. Um, well, this one's from Sheba and she said, last you were on my show about a month ago, you mentioned a paper that you weren't able to publish and she wondered if that paper was available to the public. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It, it, that's the one I showed a brief slide up there uh, that they wouldn't publish it, but it was published in EC Nutrition. You know, let me see if I can pull that up here. Oh, how can I do that? I'm, I'm going to go back and share the screen again, if you will. Sure. See if I can get something different on here. <clears throat> oh, gosh, where is it? Okay, I'll get there. Maybe. There it is. Oh, oh here. No, there you go. Oh, here we go. Down yeah. there. Hello. Um, I got to hear some place. Where is it? Oh, here it is. There it is right there. I, I wrote I, I wrote this title, A Nutrients of Life for COVID-19, hoping that this is an opportunity for, you know, the those of us in medicine research policy to tell the world 
that, you know, there's some data out there how to take care of uh, coronavirus. It's, uh, and they wouldn't even review it. Uh, we did not, I know this is very controversial, but uh, neither Karen or I took the vaccine because I didn't, uh, I thought some more problems or solutions. Uh, we took a lot of heat for that, to say the least. Uh, understandably, you know, people were concerned for us, but uh, after, it was last August, actually, we got the COVID, but we didn't get the headaches. We didn't get the fever. You know, we didn't get any of that stuff. And uh, I've had a little bit of a long COVID for having gotten a disease, but I'm here I'm just living with it a little bit. But other than that, we we did, we came through fine. I, I think the whole coronavirus affair, the pandemic, we've got a lot to learn, you know, and what we just went through for the last three years. Hmm. Okay. You know, thank yeah. you. And, and, and she also said that in your book, The Future of Nutrition, you stated that a whole food plant-based eating pattern may reduce susceptibility and improve antibody response to viral illnesses such as COVID-19, and that the antibody immune response may improve within days. Do you think that the opposite is also true, that a person who normally eats a whole food plant-based diet could become susceptible to viral illnesses with days of suddenly eating processed food? That's a good question. I, I don't think so, uh, AJ. I, I know uh, the data, I have, I have lots of other data that viral diseases don't flourish very well among people who really eat well, they, and they don't. Uh, we had that experience ourselves. Um, it doesn't mean to say we won't get the disease. In fact, we tested positive ourselves, but we didn't suffer the consequences. You know, we test positive a lot of times for flu and stuff like that. Um, you're asking if, uh, I think, uh, whether or not um, if we ate uh, processed foods, you know, whether we might then be susceptible to the virus. I can't say that. It's a good, good question, by the way. Um, processed foods, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tricky term because most people think of processed foods as, you know, got special chemicals in them and maybe contaminated pesticides and herbicides. That's, that's, part, of the, that's part of the definition. But um, we can also say processed foods are those things that we cut up. That, that's not processed, of course. We cook them. That's not that's already processed. Um, and so we have to use that word processed a little bit carefully. I know that it generally means uh, the foods that are not whole uh, and loaded up with sugar, uh, fat, added oil, added fat, and salt. Three things we don't need. Um, people can go all the way to a vegan diet, if you will. And uh, it turns out that the amount of fat that vegans, this is a beautiful study, the largest one done, that vegans uh, consume the same amount of fat and sugar as do meat eaters and vegetarians. So um, I've kind of strayed away from the vegan. I, I know it's not good motivation. I understand it. I appreciate it. All for it. But as far as the science is concerned, that's not in my bailiwick. Thank you. Uh, one of the live viewers is asking, what are your thoughts if you are 90% whole food plant-based, what do you think the impact would be versus somebody that was 100%? 
Well, yeah, I'm speaking and then just to judge my colonism here, opinion, uh, because we haven't really done that, but uh, sort of there's some indirect data shows that people who do 100 are better than ones doing 90. But who knows? I mean, we're all different individuals and there's sometimes always exceptions. We're playing with odds here. We're playing with the odds. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons for doing, you know, going 100% it's not just because, you know, we're being purists or trying to be strict about it. Not, not from a scientific point of view at all. One reason to go try to go the whole way is this. And this is, I have friends in Italy who actually did, did this beautiful sort of a thing that they did. They took a bunch of people and, and uh, put them on a uh, so-called jumpstart diet. You know, I'm, hot, glad. Hot. I'm glad you're listening. Okay, bye. Okay. Hansi, Hansi, shh, shh. What's that? Hello? Hans is talking on the phone. <laughs> we, oh, can okay. hear you, huh? we can so, hear you. We can hear you. So anyhow, uh, they, he, they took a bunch of people and took them through nine days, put them on a whole food plant-based diet. And these are people who had health problems and we saw the usual things. They saw the usual things, feeling good and all that sort of stuff. And at the end of nine days, unfortunately, uh, only 10% of them stayed with it, only 10%. And that's pretty routine for those people who try this kind of thing. They, you know, people can experience this, this good effect and then it goes away, they don't stay with it. I mean, some, some do, of course, but what they did, uh, they did it again. And after nine days, they asked them, would you like to do this for another 15 days? And so they did. They said, yeah, because it's feeling pretty good, why not? So they did another 15 days. They did that four times. And finally, people had been on, uh, you know, a hundred percent diet that way, uh, up to sixty some days, um, and uh, and then everyone stayed with the diet. Demonstrating mm -hmm. a really important point, and the point is this: you know, our bodies, you, we get addicted. Let's face it, you know, to various tastes. You know, we all do to this, that, something else. But if we give our body a chance enough to experience what really is good food, at the same time getting health benefits, mm -hmm. if we give a chance to stay there, then our, then our taste preferences have changed. And we don't go back. We don't go back. I mean, my wife and I did this kind of slowly over a period of 10 years, I guess you could say, as I was learning this stuff. But, uh, you know, and I, I, I like, still liked my cheese and I did this and that and stuff. And, and uh, still use dairy. Uh, but finally, when we got all the way off, and I really became convinced of this, we stayed there. Uh, I don't, I have no interest in going back and eating the food that I once did as a kid. Uh, certainly no milk, not even any cheese, which was one of my favorites. Uh, you know, no meat. And so that's the way it worked for me. And I, I think there's a, a good biological explanation for it. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Campbell, Rick and Teresa would like to know, what's your opinion of B12 supplements? Oh, I, I sort of go along just without causing a lot of problems. I you know, to be honest about it. Uh, you know, that's, that's the only thing that uh, I take one, uh, one, uh, once a week, just because Carrie said I should. And I, I want to I have enough problems <laughs> so so I take them. But really looking at the B12 evidence, uh, I'm not very impressed with the justification for taking that. 
but there is some evidence that you can get pretty low on that. And there's a few cases here and there that there, there have been shown anemia, especially a certain kind of anemia. So I guess I tell anybody else, I said, yeah, do it. <laughs> Nothing lost because B12 is, is pretty safe anyhow. Great. And what are your thoughts on oil, salt, and sugar if one is whole food plant-based? But how can you be whole food plant-based if you're eating oil and sugar because they're not whole foods? Well, I would say, uh, AJ, it's this, uh, it's uh, added oil. Aha. Uh -huh. sugar. And we don't usually use those words, but that's what it's about. That's what we should be careful of. But, you know, I, I know S and I, S and my, my good friend, we we had some different opinion on that one um, because he's treating heart disease patients. But uh, and added oil is a is a problem, and the reason it's a problem is because it is plant based. Most of it it's corn oil stuff like that. That's made up of polyunsaturated oils or fats. Those kind of oils are being consumed out of a bottle, out of the context of the whole food. Under that circumstance, just these polyunsaturates, they're susceptible to excessive oxidation, forming free radicals, mm. which turn turn on cancer, stimulate heart disease, and so forth. So I, I'm like my friend in the U.S., uh, AJ, and probably you, uh, Dr. Deal too, uh, that uh, let's let's not use that added oil. It becomes addictive. It mm. becomes addictive, and uh, so the best thing is stay away from it. Thank you. There's a question from MT on aflatoxins. Is the aflatoxin that you noted in the study given with the proteins in our food system and or was it prior? No, the aflatoxin is a mold toxin, by the way. It's a mold called Aspergillus flavus. Um, and uh, so it's generally found in peanuts and some peanuts. Um, also uh, more in corn than what we had realized. Uh, and so years ago, when I was first starting my friends, in fact, that's what I worked, worked, did my research on. It's a very important carcinogen when tested alone uh, like that. Um, but then uh, I got involved with the FDA some because they wanted wanted to, uh, I was working with them at the time too. Uh, and uh, they did a good job of bringing uh, the control of aflatoxin, bringing aflatoxin contamination under control, especially peanuts. And, but the, the, on a peanut equation, uh, if anybody's eating peanuts or shell under peanuts themselves, you know, you're gonna find every once in a while, a peanut got some black stuff in it, throw it away. Because that's just the occasional peanut that really gets contaminated. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I took a flight uh, this weekend on Southwest and the airlines don't serve peanuts anymore. Yeah, probably because of this story I was just telling you. I know. Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes, sometimes these stories, they become a little louder and more common, but it's, it's a safe thing. It's fair enough. Yeah. What one of the live viewers apparently has colon cancer. They've been doing whole food plant-based for three years, the mastering diabetes program. Any advice for somebody that's been eating this way a while and still has cancer or develops cancer? Yeah, sure. Um, that's also an excellent question. And, and I, I have to uh, say that uh, something about science, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see something that really is pretty strong. 90% of people affected, maybe 99%, and, and that's that's all at play. 
uh, it doesn't mean somehow that a, a person doing it all the right way will have a problem, that's for sure. Uh, and we don't really know why. Uh, and uh, under those circumstances, we have to take some measures, uh, you know, that we otherwise might not. Uh, but um, yeah, we got still got work to do, but, uh, and, and we've got to acknowledge that uh, life is not perfect. It's not perfect, and unfortunately. Uh, and we just do the best we can. And if we do it the really right way, the odds of getting getting the right answer is maybe 90%, maybe it's 99%, you know, like that. So it's it's uh, science is in some sense a play of chance. That's how we analyze data. Right, thank you. So you have a new book coming out, don't you, pretty soon? Or you're writing one? Yeah, I do. I am. Can you talk about it, or is it a, is it a secret? No, it's no secret, but I, I I don't want to tell the content of it because it's it's going to be a little bit controversial. Uh oh. Uh, uh, basically, uh, I, I just simple question: Why has it taken so long to understand this concept of nutrition? Now, I have my own experiences being in the professions I have been all the way, you know, particularly involved in national policy and other things like that, I have seen what goes on behind the scenes, behind the curtain. I don't like it. I find it extremely upsetting. Mm. So I'm basically going to tell what I learned. And uh, I, at this point, I, I have nothing to lose. I, I have a choice. And I'm going to name, I can't help it because if I didn't name some people, then uh, it, it would go unnoticed. And some people would say I'm making it up, or if you will, but it's all documented. And, uh, and then some of the things that have happened, the public, you know, the public doesn't tend to, the public sort of is skeptical about governmental action. I know that. A lot of people are. Uh, and they make uh, honest mistakes and they be cautious. And so I, I don't want, it's not all black and white. But on the other hand, there are individuals, there are individuals who have something else in mind and they get in powerful positions. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it firsthand. <clears throat> I've been there. And uh, so it'll be kind of an interesting story, I suspect. Uh, but I don't, I just, I really debated. Should I tell this stuff? Well, I, I can't, <laughs> I, I can't walk away from something I, I'm really confident of. I just can't. And so whatever cost, whatever price I pay, I don't care. I <laughs> just I just want to other people to know this is what it happens because these things collectively uh, all trace to a common origin. And we participate in that common, common flaw without knowing it because our thinking is largely controlled. Do you recommend when people have cancer, they give True North a chance if they're eligible? Yes. I'm glad you didn't mention that. I, I, uh, Alan Goldhammer, we all know him, a uh, uh, very good friend of mine. I, I was the one that uh, actually isolated a compound called dioxin. It was the Agent Orange compound, the most toxic chemical ever, ever discovered. I, my first I was at MIT at the time, and I had a job of isolating from some oil being fed to chickens. It was killing the chickens. I had my job was to see if I could isolate that chemical, and I did. In a region of pure form, I didn't have the chemical structure, 
two years later, it was labeled dioxin. So, and then I had, I've suffered from that, got, had problems. And so I had difficulty speaking after about 25 years, I was losing my speech and other things. And I had myself tested and lo and behold, it was Canadian, the Canadian authorities did this. I had a dioxin level in my blood 800 times the maximum allowed. It was unreal. Uh, I, I couldn't quite believe it. So um, then I was invited to give a talk by the National Hygiene Society at that time. And I had given up lectures. I, I couldn't, couldn't form my words very well. I explained to the, the fellow who called me, I said, I can't, I don't think I can talk. And they said, well, if you come here, uh, there's a lot of doctors of a different kind, the National Hygiene Society, national meetings. So they very kindly had me come down and that was what they were aware of that. And I struggled through it. And, and then 10, 10 of them, there were about 500 of them were DCs and DOs and so forth, some MDs. They took me upstairs and examined me and one thing led to another and Alan Goldham was there. And so they, at their expense, they sent me out to this fasting place. I thought to myself, I had been to all kinds of doctors at that point in time. I was kind of depressed about the whole thing. And so I went there, did this worldly fast, because at least I would never get it out of my body. I was tested, it was so high. And uh, so I did it oh, for 14 You You fasted for 14 days? I did it for 14 days. I came home. I, it felt okay. Uh, and but I saw others there with benefits. And then, uh, and I, I didn't, the problem, my problem didn't go away really, to be honest about it. Uh, and then I learned that dioxin at that time, this many years later, had, was proven to be a neurotoxin. So I, all of a sudden I sort of had, I thought, an explanation for it. But then Alan uh, told me, come back again. He said, sometimes you have to do it twice. So I did. And uh, so I, I came back and did it with this time with Karen, because that's when she got diagnosed with melanoma, by the way. And so that I thought that was a good good measure for that too. So we both went there. I came home the second time, and it was within about three weeks, four weeks. Uh, my problem was resolved. And then I got tested at UCLA in the, in the lab there, the toxicology lab. It was down to zero. <laughs> so I, I am a fan of fasting, I can tell you. Uh, I was just there again uh, for a while, uh, about 14 days, I guess it was. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people there now doing it for 40 days, water-only fasting. So I am a big, big fan of rock. As a matter of fact, next week, for any of you who might wish to know this, the National Hygiene Society now named a uh, National Health Association. Uh, Allen is one of the premier members. Uh, Frank Sabatino is another one by Mark Kieran. Kieran uh, they just, uh, they come out with quarterlies. They just got a magazine and uh, featured an interview with me and then asked me to come out and give the keynote. So this is one week from today, next Friday. No, next, uh, one week from tomorrow in Cleveland, Ohio. That's fantastic. Dr. Campbell, this most recent trip to True North, did you go just like to visit or did you actually fast again? No, I fasted. And uh, the reason I did uh, is because my daughter went with me. She had some some problem was bothering her. So we thought that's a 
that's my go-to solution. That's so <laughs> great. I wish we could all take you with us when we go to fast, Dr. Campbell. Well, Alan, I, I just like yeah, being with Alan too. We, we were very good friends. And wow. uh, so I did it. And I, oh, I said, I, I did have a bit of a problem. My blood pressure had gotten up uh, above where it should be. And I, I didn't know what, I think it was stress from all this stuff that, that I'm talking about in the book, <laughs> I guess, but uh, it, it was fluctuated. They go up and then go down. And so that's why I went there. Yeah. That's great. Dr. Campbell, thank you. I know it's so late where you are. We thank you so much for your life's work and for doing this, especially so late. We really appreciate you and we can't wait for your next book. Well, all I can say, you guys, you, you, you've been at this a long time yourself with cooking and and uh, Hans, uh, what you've been doing with your with your uh, organization and your people, all I was going to say, keep it up. We're all on the right track, and it's it's kind of fun to see something happen that's good. So the two of you are doing something that's happening, and it's good. Oh, so thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. Now, Dr. Jill, would you like to come back on for a moment and just say goodbye to the people, or would Betty would like to talk about your organization? Dr. Kimmel, you're looking great. I won't tell them what your age is, but you are advancing chronologically, but you're not biologically advancing. You're staying right where you are. You're looking young. And I'm really happy that all of us would be today with Chef AJ and the uh, Healthy Road Program. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. And Betty, did you want to talk about the Zoom that your organization does if people want to want to find out more about what you do? Sure. Yes. Thank you. Doc. Thank you, Chef AJ. And thank you, Dr. Uh, Campbell. Uh, my name is Betty Peoples Wheeler, and I and my colleague, we run a group called uh, Healthy Road Lifestyle. It's a group that emphasizes the importance of a whole food plant-based diet. I will give you my number. It's 909 228-0217. I'll put it in the chat. If you're interested, we're, it's a great group of people. We support each other uh, as we are working on our health goals. So it's a great place to come with a lot of wonderful people. And Dr. Deal has uh, been a great support to our group. And so uh, we thank you all again for being here tonight. What a great meeting it has been. And we thank you so much, Dr. Campbell, for all of your contributions to science. I loved what you've done over the years and just feel honored that you've joined us today. So thank you. Thanks, thank you. And thanks all of you and everyone have a good evening. Take care, everyone. Good night. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. You can all wave goodbye. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> <laughs> it was so sad to see you go. Bye everybody.